Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This is another episode in Controversial Prayers. This is part two of three, and this took place in Amsterdam, 1708. Yes, well, actually, we're going to cover two controversies in prayer, one in early 18th century Amsterdam and the other in early 19th century Germany. That's our lucky week. (laughs) So the first one, one day in the winter of the early 18th century, 1706 actually, a Portuguese Jew in Amsterdam called Nathan Curiel enters the Esnocha synagogue and he sees a local scholar, David Mendes de Silva, arriving late for the morning service for Shacharis. Not something that would, of course, ever happen nowadays, but this was something that occurred apparently back then. So Kuriel knew that halacha requires a person under those circumstances to skip most of the introductory part, the Psuki Zimra, in order to pray the central Amida together with the congregation. However, De Silva, instead of following this course of action, proceeded to pray Shacharis in order and thereby missed praying with the minion, the communal Shemana Esrei. That's quite the controversy. Right. So, yeah, so big deal, uh, I hear you say, Uh, in terms of the listeners, I guess it's virtual. Uh, Except that this kicked off 14 years of controversy, involved one of the greatest halachic authorities of the generation, brought about one of Amsterdam jury's most stringent sanctions, and generated hundreds of pages of writing and exchange in communications, which it must be said was not all the most polite in some places. I'm listening again. Right. So, Curiel approaches De Silva after davening, and he questioned him about his shacharis. And De Silva tells Curiel that what he had done was of superior merit to that which was recommended by the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, in other words, doing it by skipping. And it was derived, what he had done, was derived from a Kabbalistic source in the Zayar, attributed to Rup and therefore it's not only correct, but better. So Kuriel takes the question to Rabbi Yitzhak Sasportas, and subsequently to the Chacham Tzvi, whom we've mentioned in podcasts before, both of whom write virulently against this alleged Kabbalistic idea, which they held to be a misinterpretation of Azair. It's important to realize that underlying the halachic issue is the historical context. Meaning, if it hadn't been in Amsterdam, this whole fuss might have gone 
are almost unnoticed. And in fact, in many cases, halachic responsa need to be seen in their historical setting. You can't always apply them broadly. So Rabbi Susporta's responsa was based on two elements. Firstly, he felt that no such opinion existed in the Zohar, which actually strongly supports prayer with the community, Tefillah B'Tzibur, over private prayer. And the source that De Silva quoted had not been interpreted this way or used by any other authority to justify what he was doing. In other words, he was the first to make this interpretation. Secondly, he wrote that one should not involve Kabbalah in halachic matters. Now, this point is far from accepted, to be fair, even by the Shulchan Aruch himself. As an example, the famous dispute as to whether one puts on tefillin during the intermediate days of Sukkot and Pesach is essentially based on halacha versus Kabbalah. He's aware that what he's writing isn't as straightforward, but but he was making his point in the historical context of Amsterdam, which was a powder keg for reasons we will come to. Now, this argument in the shul soon became known throughout the community, and an uproar ensued. The Parnasim, the communal lay leaders, decided to bring the matter before the sages who sit in judgment for education, and they sided with Rav Sesportus. But De Silva continues his practice, and after several warnings, he is excommunicated temporarily, but excommunicated. It's pretty serious, that, for something that seems relatively minor. Right. So... Rav Sosmolters, in what he wrote, added the teaching of Hillel in the Mishnah of not separating yourself from the community, which he explained broadly as referring to the community, capital letters, of the Jewish people, meaning not to cast aspersions on halacha, which has been received through the ages. No matter how minor. Right. And at this point, he states his concern that De Silva's actions, if left unchecked, will cause the masses to be lax in synagogue attendance. And at this point, um, we need to talk about the Amsterdam Kihila in order to understand the background. Because these implications of uh, rebellion against tradition have to be understood within early 18th century Western Svardi diaspora, the Murano diaspora. Now, in Amsterdam in 1603, Jews were first able to legally operate as a community, to open a community. And within a century, there are around 7,500 Jews there, 5,000 Ashkenazim, two and a half thousand Svardim, with a very large divide between the two. Uh, You might say two sides of the street, quite literally, because if you go to Amsterdam, even today, you will see the Esnocha synagogue on one side 
and the Ashkenazi shawls on the other. There used to actually be a canal between them, which is nowadays filled in. The Ashkenazim were poor, but came from a continuous Jewish tradition. The Svardim, almost to a man, were wealthy and came from a Christian Murano background. So they didn't bring with them hundreds of years of uninterrupted Jewish life. Not, it must be said, through any fault of their own, but because of the expulsions and conversions, forced conversions in Spain and Portugal. So these Svardi Jews came from two centuries of life as crypto-Jews, during which all the main tenets of Judaism could not be observed, Shabbos, Kashras, etc. But equally important to understand is that Catholic practice, which they had to be part of, still ran in their veins, meaning that their understanding of Judaism would be measured against Catholicism. You know, you can see this if you visit the Oudekacht Cemetery in Amsterdam, which was opened in 1610, and many of the gravestones there have skull and crossbones on them, the Grim Reaper, and other icons which indicate basically a Catholic mindset. And this period in Amsterdam brought an unprecedented number of challenges to rabbinic authority and a serious threat to the continuation of traditional Jewish life because they are coming from a community that has far less tradition to guide it in the first place. So it undergoes rationalist challenges, a converso challenge, mystical, Kabbalistic, messianic challenges. I mean, let's not forget that Spinoza had been excommunicated in Amsterdam in 1656, which is within living memory of this controversy, as had a number of other individuals uh, who are less well known. We also cannot forget that Amsterdam was possibly the most enthusiastic community in backing the false messiah Shabtai Tzvi uh, 10 years after Spinoza in 1666. Uh, basically because of the Christian overtones of the Second Coming and other eschatological views which dovetailed into the arrival of the Messiah. In fact, so restricted was their knowledge of Judaism initially that the first rabbi of the Sephardi community was an Ashkenazi, whom they brought over from Germany because they had no one within their own ranks who could do the job. In addition, the former conversos who grew up under Catholicism had become accustomed to a split, a, a dichotomy almost, whereby religion has minimal impact on daily business activities, but requires strict discipline inside the place of worship. So that the Amsterdam Portuguese synagogue and the service were the focus of tremendous congregational religious fervor, which one can see today reflected by looking at the communal rule books that they had. These rules and emphasis on synagogue hierarchy, where people sit, structure, decorum, is way more than any comparable kehillah at the time and especially nowadays. 
therefore, synagogue attendance in Amsterdam was the most important link between a Jew and his religion. And therefore, a converso returning to Judaism, returning could be, you know, a generation earlier, but still on a path somewhat, whose Jewish identity might not be that strong and not that old, any suggestion that communal prayer is not of the utmost importance would lead to weakening of ties with Judaism. This is what they are facing. And then you have the dangers of Kabbalah being misinterpreted and misused, which, once again, was born out during the Shabtai Tzvi era, when special prayers were composed for him by some of the rabbis in Amsterdam. In fact, if you go to the Rosenthaliana Library in Amsterdam, you will see early printings of Svarim dedicated to Shabtai Tzvi. And at this time in Amsterdam, it had not died out. In fact, over the next decade, it would be the cause of some of the most bitter fights about Sabbateanism. So it was alive and well. And Amsterdam had no outstanding Kabbalistic scholar, Ashkenazi or Svardi. Yet, Kabbalah was widely read there, partially because the city was a centre of Jewish printing. So you have what you might term the Madonna syndrome. You know, people dressed in white called Esther who go to the Kabbalah Center. <laughs> Except that nowadays, no one is bothered by which fad you follow. You know, you can have a dozen crazy ideas before breakfast and get 12,000 likes for a crackpot idea, but no one cares. <laughs> right? But in Amsterdam back then, the very fabric of your identity within Judaism was being formed by these things. That's the context. And they do manage to keep a lid on it, especially because the Chacham Tzvi was consulted and he wrote, in fact, it's Truva number 36, Lamad Vov. But the controversy was actually rekindled in 1720. And what's really interesting is that nowadays, in terms of halachic practice, you actually have two different opinions as to what should be done. Admittedly, the majority opinion sides with the halachic norm as stated by Rav Sasportus, but there is this other opinion which is still at least somewhat valid at the moment. So when you read Shuvas, when you read responses written in the past, you need to know exactly who was asking, where they were, what the context was. Yes, it all has to be taken into account. Yep. But let's now move a hundred years further to the beginning of German Enlightenment and Emancipation. Napoleonic Europe offered the Jews increased freedom, especially in the business world. But for some, the religious practices became a hindrance. You know, Kashra's dietary laws became impractical for negotiating social circles. Standing out by wearing a head covering was detrimental. Really, you know, following halach in daily life was becoming unfeasible. And the best way was to become a German outside of the home and a Jew in one's home, which in modern days is the source of the otherwise completely illogical practice of keeping kosher at home and eating non-kosher outside the home. You know, I mean, where exactly does the shrimp become non-kosher? <laughs> you know, is it on the doorstep? Is it at the garden gate? In the hall, if you, you know, concede the kitchen? 
but that's the effect of reform on orthodoxy. And in Germany in particular, as Jews become accustomed to living within high culture, they begin to compare their forms of religious practice to the decorum of their neighbours' Christian services. So I guess it's similar to the Amsterdam Jews mentioned earlier, comparing their lifestyle to Catholicism. Well, there is one difference, because the German Jews are comparing it to Protestant Christianity because of its decorum, its yekish. It speaks to the German Jew, as opposed to Catholicism, where, you know, the service is in Latin, for instance, and not German, you know, das ist nicht so schön. <laughs> as the Reform Rabbi Itamar Elbogen explains, and I quote, the synagogue appeared to them dark and gloomy, and the traditional Jewish service, especially on Shabbos, was viewed as too long. Now, Israel Jacobson, a wealthy German muskil, gets involved on behalf of these indifferent cultured Jews because Napoleon's brother, Jerome Bonaparte, ruled over um, quite an area of northern Germany. And he wants centralised control over the Jewish population and wants them integrated into society. So he appointed Jacobson, this muskil, as the head of the Jewish council, gives him quite some authority, um, within the Kingdom of Westphalia, as it was known. Were they similar, Jerome and Napoleon? No, no, not really. <laughs> and that's why we know much less about his brother than about him. No, in certain ways, you can credit Napoleon with being a visionary. So Jacobson introduces change to the synagogue service. He builds a synagogue in Kassel in 1810, which included reforms which he deemed necessary to improve worship. And the way he put it was that uh, Protestant Germany provided the aesthetic norms of German prayers and organ and hymns replacing the standards of worship which are to be found wanting in the Jewish world when compared to the modern standards of the non-Jewish world. So this lasts for a few years because in 1813 the Kingdom of Westphalia and therefore the Jewish Council fell with Napoleon's defeat and Jacobson moves to Berlin, the Prussian capital, where he opens a private service with similar reforms. It grows to nearly 400 people on certain festivals, and now the reformers move their services to a larger house where it exists until 1823, at which point the synagogue is closed down. By whom? Not by the Jews. It's by the Prussian king, Frederick William III, who was afraid that a new reformed Jewish sect might attract Christians because it now has many similarities to Protestant services. Or equally, he was scared of the fact that it would reduce the number of accultured Jews who were targets for conversion by Christian missionaries. So this is going on in Berlin. At the same time in Hamburg, the Hamburg Temple, the Israelitische Temple, 
becomes the first permanent reform synagogue. They issue a new prayer book, the First Reform Liturgy, which omits the prayers for a restoration of Zion, of the temple and of offerings in the temple. And the rabbis across Europe condemn the builders of this new synagogue as uh, heretics. What were the main points of contention? So what needs to be understood about these controversial prayer groups is that what really goes against the grain is not the quest for shorter services, okay, you know, or that they want the sermon to be in German, because at that very same time, the Chassam Sefer in Preshburg is giving the sermon in German, admittedly in the Shul, not in the Shiva, but that's not so revolutionary. One part is the demand for the prayers to be in German, because it shows where they're headed. Although I recently looked at a copy of the first printed reform prayer book, the one that they issued in Hamburg in 1818, and for instance, all of the Rosh Hashanah davening is there. Do you know, you can still go and hear your favorite pieces of Chazanus, Atoni Glesa, um, all the tefillah of Vachol Ma'aminim, which obviously translates as all those who believe with all the stanzas that follow, which it, it's all there, which is obviously somewhat bizarre. The real issue, though, is the installing of an organ to play music, which reflects one thing, Christianity. Irrespective of the halachic issues, the, the very move towards it, as well as, let's say, moving the beamer to the front, which is similar to a, a church altar, this betrays the real direction and motivation. And so in Kassel in 1810, in Berlin, in Hamburg, this now becomes their hallmark. And even though they tried to actually justify it in halacha, for those more aware of Shabbos halacha, they held it to be what is called a shvus de shvus, a double drabonon, Firstly, because it was a non-Jew playing the organ, and secondly, because playing music itself is an Isidra Bonon, based on the Shemo Yitakein. So this Shvus is taking place B'mokoim Mitzvah. Why? Because it's only being done to enhance the sanctity of prayers in the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is, of course, absurd in Halacha, justifying committing a wrong of a mitzvah to enhance that very mitzvah which is similar to the conservative movement in the USA in the 1950s, allowing congregants to drive to shul on Shabbos, not because driving was okay, but because this way they will come to shul. That's what their specific leniency was about. It means that you might be enhancing attendance at communal prayers, but you can't break Shabbos, and in this case on the biblical level, in order to enhance Shabbos. When you've got two different mitzvahs that clash, there is a hierarchy and one wins over the other. So you break Shabbos to save life. But within the same issue, it's illogical. And therefore, this is true of their new definition of what would enhance Shabbos. And therefore, it will move with the times. You know, initially, it's only non-Jews playing. But they overturn that using this sort of pseudo-logic in halacha once again after their main 
get-togethers in 1844-45, where Stein, one of the spokespeople for the German reform movement, claimed, and I quote, it is a duty to arrange the beautification of the worship service of the organ through a co-religionist. The right kind of organist must be thoroughly suffused by the spirit of worship which he attempts to elevate. And he concludes that by adding an organ, the observance of the Sabbath can only gain through the added beautification. And this is what happens through Germany. And in fact, it would be one of the differences between reform in Germany and the neologue movement, which you find in Prague or in Galician Poland or in Hungary, which we can get to some other time, I guess. And there was the existence of an organ in Prague, which was used as precedent, which once again needs to be understood in context. But uh, this is what the fight was over. So using the organ on Shabbos, that was what you would say the dividing line between Orthodox Judaism and Reform at that time. It's not even just using on Shabbos, it's the very act of installing it in the shul, which is a movement towards reflecting the Protestant times within the building. So it's almost a combination of breaking Shabbos and the Catholicism yes, coming together. Or the Protestant, yes, yeah. yeah. And it's not just in Germany, this controversy would move 3,000 miles west to the US of A, to Charleston, South Carolina, the home of one of the oldest communities in North America, which over time, Charleston had become a place where the Jews had a real equality of life with the rest of the population. Jews were members of the middle and upper class, and they owned businesses and uh, plantations and held public office. And prior to the influx of German immigrants in the 1940s, which is when reform really starts in America, Charleston had the largest, most cultured and wealthiest Jewish community in the USA. Now, going back to 1749, Charleston Jews had opened a community the abbreviation is KKBE, Killer Kadosh Base Elikim, as a religious society. And they set up a proper structure of orthodox rules within their constitution. The Jews there were not learned, and for most of the time there was no rabbi, but the community's paranas tended to enforce community rules, and there was a system of fines. There was a problem at one stage that rose over Nusach between the Svardim and the newly arriving Ashkenazim, but then it got over that. In 1824, though, some members petition for changes to the liturgy. Their petition is rejected. So these members created the Reformed Society of Israelites on the 16th of January, 1825. And they want to open their own synagogue, which would be a first in America. But an economic downturn forces these ex-members back. So there's no new Kehla. Were they copying what was going on in Germany, or was this something they came to on their own? Was it known around the world? It was known, and it was consciously copying Germany, but not consciously copying the Protestant movement. That's what's interesting. Mm. So it divides the two points you made earlier. Right. And there is unease in Charleston for the next 15 years. Charleston 
then has a large fire that destroys many homes and shops, and the synagogue itself becomes completely unusable. So they rebuild, and they open in 1841. The synagogue is laid out in traditional Sephardic style, except for one thing. There is now an organ installed at the back of the synagogue, and this catapults the congregation into a virulent struggle. Um, there's a vote in the community board that the synagogue's charter embraces all Mosaic and Rabbinic law. Vote over that point, that idea, and it's voted down 24 to 27. So now it's the Orthodox who move away and they open their own community called Eris Israel, but they will launch a case, a legal case, based on the original chart of the Shul, and it goes to South Carolina's lower court and then to the Court of Appeal, although they lose because democracy, in some ways, prevails. I find it quite amazing that the foundations of reform were in Charleston, which suffered a large fire, and then in Germany, obviously, we know what happened there too. Yes, although it then swept America, so I'm not sure that we can uh, come to any conclusions based on that because it actually became the largest movement in America. Meanwhile, back in Germany, Rabbi David Svi Hoffman, the Melamed Lahoyal, who will eventually become the head of the Rabbiner's Seminar in Berlin and was a contemporary Orthodox German scholar, was asked by a young rabbi, one of his pupils, if it was better to allow the organ to be installed and used weekdays only, at least as sort of some sort of compromise position. And he completely opposes it in his responsum because it was a dividing line. In fact, he would append to every rabbinic ordination, every smicha that he wrote, that it was conditional on the student never becoming a rabbi in a shawl which had an organ installed in it. And this was a controversial area of, uh, of 19th century Germany and of prayer, communal prayer, and eventually in America itself as well. Fascinating. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Next week, we are going to be doing the final part of Controversial Prayers. And what will it be called? The Angels. The Angels. I think that's intriguing. Looking forward for next week. Thank you very much. And as usual, any feedback can be email to podcast at jle.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.